you're listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Here's your host, Randy Wilson. Thank you, thank you. On today's show, we've got a Christmas story. It's called A Christmas Miracle, or How We Ended Up in Golf. There will be no, absolutely no, end-of-year wrap-ups. Remember, Rock Bottom Country Club is the longest-running webisode on the entire internet, and is sponsored by Dryject, the most brilliant greens management tool in the entire universe. Well, it's been an interesting week here at Rock Bottom. While we were busy decorating for Christmas and baking cookies and such, Lula Fester, our Green Committee chairwoman, got thrown in jail. Seems Lula went Christmas shopping and bought a parrot at the pet store. Wait, a parrot? Them things cost thousands of dollars. Where'd Lula get that kind of money? Well, this one was only 20 bucks. Apparently, this parrot had been living over at Ollie Pope's house of ill repute, and the guy at the store said the parrot kept getting returned. Well, I bet it cusses like a sailor. No, Lula said it was very polite. When she brought it home and gave it a cracker, it said, Ah, pretty girl. Lula's teenage daughter walked in, and the parrot said, Ah, pretty girls, pretty girls. Then Lula's husband walked in, and the parrot said, Hello, Kevin. That reminds me, Marcella come home complaining about how mean and rude and ugly the cashier was at Big Mart, so I told her to stop going through the self-checkout. I don't recall much after that. In golf news, there's a rumor that one of the golf alphabets is finally getting around to rolling back the ball. If it's true, this could have an enormous effect on the way we manage a golf course. Oh, you've been predicting a ball rollback for decades. Ain't gonna happen. So if I predict rain and it doesn't, that means it'll never rain again? Oh, you've been reading Marcus Aurelius instead of working, right? In other news, the character who plays the skeleton in our skeletal golf segments was attacked by a bear last week and dragged off into the forest. We still haven't found his skull yet. In this month's Mad Golf Profit prediction, it won't be long before all cars and vehicles and home appliances are required to be hooked up to the internet or the insurance companies will refuse to insure you. That ain't all. Dr. DeBA wants to put an implant in my brain. He says not only will it make me smarter, it'll warn the government if I'm entertaining impure thoughts and if I've had my boosters and if... Are the police here yet? I've been assaulted. By who? Both. He hit my eye. Cleet, here's your eye back. Why does Booth have your glass eye? Oh, it fell out during my practice swing, and it went in that deep rough on number eight. And before I could find it, that old fool hit it with a forward. It puts real good, too, just like it could see the line. I got a birdie. I'm old Kelly. Hold on. Let's get back to our Christmas preparations. Booth, you and Cletus shake hands and be friends again. Ain't no need for violence. What if I don't want to? Then I'll kick your butt so hard, both your eyes will pop out, roll around on the floor where the dog can get them. In other news, Rock Bottom has switched diets again. After decades of experimenting with every diet known to man since the early Epizoic period, you know, like the grapefruit diet, the Mediterranean diet, the cyclist diet, the Paleolithic, the keto, the vegetable Aryan, and even the wheat belly, we have finally settled on the carnivore way. Now, the first month it was totally involuntary you know, point of a gun and all that. But after a while, certain physical imbalances began to fade away. Skin issues, headaches, my regular heartburn completely vanished. And I can't list the others because we're in polite company, but 
It's been rather shocking how many things have cleared up since I quit being a vegetarian and started eating mostly meat. Turfnetters, if you want more info on this, DM me or just check out Dr. Ken Berry on the YouTube. I think the secret to this way of eating is actually the severe reduction of sugar, which apparently is some kind of poison. Or maybe it's some kind of cocaine-type substance for us bourgeoisie morons. I thought you were going to tell a Christmas story. You weren't clickbaiting us, were you? Okay, it's story time. Long, long ago, more than 50 years in the past, the Wilson tribe experienced one of those magical Christmases, like in the Hallmark movies, and our lives were changed. We got diverted from military life into golf. Back in the 50s and 60s, Dad was a sergeant in the Army, a paratrooper in the 11th Airborne. He was also a talented golfer. You know, we traveled a lot. I think I was enrolled in 17 schools before making it out of 12th grade. My favorite place that we were stationed in the whole world was a special forces base just outside of Batolts, Bavaria, pretty much the home of special forces. In 1952, SF was positioned in the Alps for the task of what the brass called Force multiplication. That's a $10 phrase for a 12-man team to instruct the indigenous population, more expensive phrases, and create a guerrilla force of maybe 400 resistance fighters. The SF team would instruct the locals in the fine art of unconventional warfare in the event the Ruskies came through the Fulda Gap in force, headed for Paris, kind of like Adolf did. The idea was the indigenous um, local residents could slip in behind the first wave of Ruski armor and blow up stuff real good. You know, bridges, rails, dams, brothels, and other essential infrastructure. On our second tour in Deutschland, we ended up in Batolz in 66, and it was a paradise, unless you were a golfer. Golfers hate snow, rain, fog, and cold. Dad was miserable. He often lamented that the two days of Bavarian summer were not enough for him to groove his swing. While Dad was responsible for instilling leadership in young soldiers, he somehow managed to play golf all over Europe. Before we get into the Christmas miracle, let's cover some of Batolt's history, sort of clear this up for you. Toltz was an ancient village on the Isar River about 30 clicks below Munich and situated on the edge of the Alps. There was a small archway said to have been there when Kublai Khan, Genghis's grandson, wandered through, and as such, the town refused to remove it to accommodate BMWs and other modern vehicles. Just outside of Tolts was a facility originally built as a training school for SS officers. It was taken over by the American Army in 45. One old German fellow told me that Adolf put the school there in retaliation for the town failing to turn out for one of his speeches in 1933. Of course, another fellow, a golfer at the base nine-holer, told me the reason the school was placed there was because Heinrich Himmler had a house on what would become the golf course. But you know what liars golfers can be, so grain of salt. This facility, known as a Cassern, was designed by Himmler and it was special. I once saw a photo of old Heinrich running on the track with younger officers, the same track we ran laps on for football. And I was surprised that he was a pudgy, soft, strewed leader, not some Aryan Superman. He looked more like a librarian with uncontrolled access to a bakery. Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, had command of the Cassern at one time, and just after the end of the war, George Patton became the base commander. George was very popular with the local Germans because he was soon elected mayor of Batolz. The Cassern was fairly luxurious by the standards of most bases we had been stationed on. It had sports fields, an indoor pool with a 30-foot diving tower, 12-foot depth for scuba training, a basketball gym, the previously mentioned golf course, 
a big theater where we could watch a different movie every night for less than a quarter. Except Tuesdays and Wednesdays, they ran the same film. The concern had a commissary, and a snack bar, and a great library. The concern housed the 10th Special Forces Group as well as the 7th Army NCO Academy. The NCO Academy was famous as the most difficult, strictest NCO course in the entire Army, and it was right next door to 10th Group, which, if you know anything about SF, they were the exact opposite of NCO Academy doctrine. One was loose and unconventional, and the other was rigid and by the book. Dad was rigid and by the book, except when it came to grabbing some free time to go play golf. Once, he slipped out, grabbed a train, and went up to Berlin, where he won the Berlin Invitational, which made him very popular with the officers who wanted to learn the dark and hidden secrets of golf. Dad took advantage of this and taught some of the officers, including the base commander, how to play good golf. I should probably tell you about the tunnels. The concern supposedly had several layers of tunnels beneath it, with one tunnel, the mythic seventh layer, running nine kilometers away to the little village of Lingris. Two of the legendary occupants of Tolts, the Halford brothers, they were the offspring of an SF sergeant major. Anyway, the Halford brothers reportedly went down into the tunnels and found the seventh layer flooded and blocked with a tiger tank. I cannot verify this as I only made it down to level two. Level two was where dad kept his secret golf practice room. He had to have this secret room because it snowed and told for months at a time and Dad went insane during these periods. Dad built what would eventually become a prototype for golf simulators of today. He used layers and layers of carpet, camouflage netting, and a small yet priceless strip of what was known then as AstroTurf. Dad would sneak down there and practice for hours, but was always available to give golf lessons to high-ranking officers. Several colonels took lessons from Dad. I won't name them, but Colonel M was famous. He had made both of the combat jumps that became movies later on, like, you know, D-Day and Market Garden, or uh, it's known as a bridge too far in the modern vernacular. Colonel I was a famous spec ops leader, and Colonel K later ran Operation Phoenix in Vietnam, which pretty much shut down the Viet Cong and forced the NVA to take full responsibility for the final days of the war. Colonel K gave me his jungle boots when he got back from Nam, and I wore them like they were magic. Decades later, I passed those boots down to my oldest son, who wore them out. They had powers. The colonel's wives would send a staff car to pick up my mother to have her do their hair, so both mom and dad were part of the concerned community. Now that you know all of that, Christmas of 67 in Tolts was different. Normally, we had snow on the ground in November, but this year the snow was late. It was kind of warm, which was giving us all nightmares, especially those of us who needed snow to live. Dad was ecstatic, however, playing golf in the near tropical temperatures of 40 degrees and acting all giddy and such. All the snow junkies were freaking out as Christmas approached. My friends, who had all put in formal Santa requests for skis, ski boots, ski everything, were facing a disaster. I was concerned as well. Although I had not asked for ski stuff, because skiing was verboten in our family. Dad thought I would break a leg, and I know it sounds crazy, but in those days the ski bindings didn't really release. The boots were just stiff hiking boots with flat soles, and the bindings were like steel cables that wrapped around your heel. Oh, I still went skiing, I just had to keep it a secret. I could rent skis from my friends, being as how I was independently wealthy due to my ball hawking business. My baseball coach would give me a ride to the local ski hill, the Brownick, if I slipped him onto the officer's course during the warmer days. 
If coach wasn't around, I had to ski like a pauper, where you hiked up the mountain and skied back down. No lifts. Now it's cool to do that. They call it backcountry skiing, but we didn't know it was cool. It was just slow. A friend of mine had this thing called a snurfer. It was a forerunner of the modern snowboard. It was narrow, about like a water ski. It had no bindings. Just a rope affixed to the front of the board, and you held on until you reached speeds above 10 mile an hour when the snurfer would begin to shimmy and subsequently fling you off like an angry rodeo bull. I asked Dad for a snurfer for Christmas because, you know, I was 12 years old. I had reached adulthood, and I figured he'd relent. Our routine on big holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas involved dinner provided at the mess hall, since it was difficult for us to procure the fixings. I remember one Christmas, 1959, I think, when our Christmas turkey was actually Christmas spam. Anyway, we were looking forward to Christmas dinner at noon in the mess hall, even if we had no snow. Christmas Eve, we did our traditional walk around the housing area, looking at light displays and listening to the music, visiting with friends. You know, it was a little hollow without the snow, but, you know, it was still Christmas. Of course, everybody, I mean everybody, was freaking out about no snow. So several of us prayed for snow, openly, because we couldn't handle the idea of lots of new skis and sleds and ice skates and snurfers without snow. We couldn't control the heat in our quarters. They weren't really apartments, but that's what they called them. It was normal to leave the windows open no matter how cold it was, because if it snowed, you knew right away. I left my windows open that night and went to bed, more concerned about the snow than whatever toys or socks I might get the next morning. And when you're 12, toys just lose their luster unless the toys are explosive or they allow you to slide down a mountain at warp speed. At 0500 hours, 5 o'clock in the morning, Dad got up to see if it had snowed, and there wasn't a single flake on the ground. He went back to bed, planning to go hit balls after Christmas dinner. When he got up at 08 and looked out, mostly to see what all the yelling was about, there was a foot of snow on the ground and still falling. It was a Christmas miracle. For Christmas, my younger brother Mike got what appeared to be a bright red triangular piece of steel intended to slide down a snowy slope at great speeds. I didn't get the snurfer. Instead, I got a set of power belts. A driver, a three-wood, a putter, and four irons. Three, five, seven, nine. Dad was excited about turning me into a golfer, but I was less than enthusiastic. The presence of the big red death sled made up for the lack of a snurfer, even if it wasn't for me, so Mike and I wolfed down a bowl of cornflakes and headed for the golf course. Dad came along. The second hole was a steep downhill par three with a rope toe. Half the base was already there trying out skis and sleds and toboggans, so we jumped into the chaos. We soon learned the triangular death sled was fast, really fast, especially with Dad on board. I estimate we weighed in excess of 300 pounds. We also learned that it was unsteerable. We careened down the slope at the speed of sound, which was good because that way we couldn't hear all the people cursing us. And as we couldn't use the rope toe with the red behemoth, it was trudged back up the hill, dragging the heavy steel, until Dad declared it was time to go get ready for the mess hall Christmas dinner. It continued to snow. Dinner was great, and Dad took us out in the woods afterward, where he set off a couple of grenade simulators that blowed up real good, and we went back home to our quarters where I got dressed to go covertly borrow skis, while Mike struggled to drag his sled out in the backyard. Dad disappeared. By the time the sun went down that Christmas day, the snow was waist-deep, 
and still falling. I found out later that Dad had slipped off to his secret golf practice sanctuary in the tunnels to mourn the end of dry turf and warm temperatures. I suspected that he was disappointed that I hadn't even unwrapped or played with the set of junior power belts in the red plaid golf bag. I also thought maybe he was working off some frustration with his idiot older son. But I didn't learn about what happened next for years. While Dad was swatting golf pellets into a camo net, Colonel M showed up, also attempting to escape all of the family Christmas hysteria. And he took a fairly lengthy golf lesson from Dad. During the lesson, Colonel M suggested Dad take over the base golf course, in addition to his duties as acting first sergeant at the NCO Academy. Gradually, Dad took to running a golf course like a kangaroo takes to boxing. Before the following summer was over, Colonel M used his considerable influence to send Dad to California, a promised land for golf, a place where you would never see snow unless you just wanted to. Dad's job in California was to inform families about the deaths of their boys in Vietnam. Dad didn't like it. He took a part-time job as an assistant pro on a wealthy course called Sunnyside. It was in Fresno. And it wasn't long before Dad left the Army and went all in on running golf courses. After five courses, he switched from pro super to golf course superintendent. Eventually, Mike and I did the same thing. We walked away from the military to run, even design and build golf courses. While Mike had a sparkling career in the Ranger Battalion, I... Well, we don't talk about my adventures, but anyway, we all ended up in golf because of that one snowy Christmas. Is there a moral to this story? I think so. Never stop praying for snow at Christmas. You've been listening to Rock Bottom Radio, broadcasting from deep in the turf net zone. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes. 